You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Thursday, May 6th, which means we are still celebrating Teacher Appreciation Week. And today, we're gonna show our appreciation to... Gym teachers! Yes, that's right, gym teachers. Sorry for making fun of you for wearing sweatpants to work. We apologize. You know, now that we all do it, we see how right you were this entire time. So thank you. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, Twitter is forcing us to be nice. Desi Lydic tells us what all mothers want for Mother's Day, and we look at how cyber ninjas are gonna help Donald Trump get back in power. So let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. All right, let's kick things off with Twitter, the site that owes $30 billion in meme royalties to Denzel Washington. Now, I love Twitter as much as anyone, but one of the worst things about it is how absolutely any post can turn into a nasty fight. I mean, you could type, I love my mom, and then you get 10 replies telling you to go kill yourself. And one of them is from your mom. Well, now, Twitter is trying to make things a little more civil. There's more changes on the way for Twitter. The tech company is rolling out a feature that will automatically detect mean replies, and then it prompts people to review the replies before they send them. Users will have three options from there. You can either tweet the message as is, edit it, or delete it altogether. Gives you time to think before you tweet, kind of revisit it. That's right, people. Twitter is introducing a new feature that will tell you if your tweets are too mean or if they're about Ted Cruz not mean enough. The problem with this idea is that if you're on Twitter, well, you've already decided you're gonna act like a dick. I mean, that's what Twitter is for. It would be like if the waiter at the Cheesecake Factory asked you if you're sure you wanna order a meal that's 12,000 calories. My man, I'm here, aren't I? Why you think I came here? To think about my life choices? Nah, just bring the food. And honestly, guys, I don't even know if Twitter's algorithm is gonna be smart enough to flag which tweets are mean. Because if you think about it, the meanest tweets are the ones that sound the nicest. Like, you dress like shit is mean. But when someone says, it's so brave to go out looking like that, whew, that'll destroy you. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to hate on what Twitter's trying to do, you know? If this actually makes people rethink cruel messages that they wrote in the heat of the moment, well, that's great. But it also makes the mean tweets that make it through so much worse. Because then you know that person thought about it long and hard and decided, yes, they do think you're a soy boy cuck. In fact, if you give people a chance to reconsider their tweet, it could go the wrong way entirely. Huh. You know, Twitter, you're right. Now that I think about it, I don't want to call this guy a loser. I want to call him a punk ass bitch with a dumb ass face that... Let's move on now to some international news coming out of Belgium. It's a country that is so much more than just waffles. Like they have, uh... And while there's not usually much news coming out of Belgium, one man there has just sparked a major diplomatic incident. 
a Belgian farmer taking the concept of country pride a bit too far. He moved a stone on his property some seven feet to make room for a tractor, inadvertently shifting the border with France, making his country bigger and France smaller. Turns out the stone is part of a series of border markers that have been in place since 1819. Wait, hold up. Europeans can just arbitrarily move their own border lines around? Huh. I thought they only did that to Africa. Man, this is such a fun story, though, because I love the idea that countries mark their borders like kids playing soccer in a park. Okay, the goal is between the trash can and the tree. And that book bag over there, that's where Germany starts. And you know, as much as it makes me feel better that even countries have been getting bigger during the pandemic, are we sure this was an accident? I mean, maybe this is just Belgium's slow plan to take over the world. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's just seven feet, let them have it. And then a year later, it's another seven feet, and then another seven feet, and then, a, and then one day we'll just be like, was Tokyo always a part of Belgium? Huh, feels like it wasn't. And finally, this Sunday is Mother's Day, the day when Americans celebrate their moms with flowers and breakfast in bed, which, by the way, I never really understood. I don't get why people like breakfast in bed, you know? It's just so magical to lie here and eat in the place I've been farting for eight hours, and then I'm gonna go back to sleep in the place I ate. Look, the point is, it's a special day. And for more on that day, let's talk to our senior mom correspondent, Desi Lydic. Happy Mother's Day to you, Desi. And let me just say, I think it's one holiday that should be every day. Well, that's kind of dumb, Trevor. You can't have Mother's Day every day. I mean, the world would run out of roses and gift cards for massages that don't include the tip. Yeah, I know. It was just the sentiment. Um, I was, you know what? It doesn't matter. Um, this Mother's Day, Desi, should be more fun than the last, right? Because people are vaccinated, places are reopening. So, you know, moms can actually go out and have fun and feel safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, honestly, it's a huge relief because this past year has been especially hard for moms. I mean, moms have taken on the the biggest burden of the pandemic, really, when it, between juggling career, uh, childcare, homeschooling. The only thing that's working harder than moms was our iPads. I mean, it, my kid is just as much Peppa Pig's son as my own. <laughs> I feel you there, Desi. Oh, I love that show. I actually, I actually got a pet turtle during quarantine and I have to feed it almost every day. And I, I'm, I mean, it's not the same, but it's kind of the same, right? It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. Um, Desi, moms have been through a lot and, um, and hopefully you're gonna get some amazing gifts from your kids. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait for that coupon for free hugs, you know? I feel like I have so many of those at this point, I can buy around for everyone. You know, Trevor, do you know what would be really the best gift that America can get moms this Mother's Day? I do, Desi. America needs to give its moms universal childcare and paid parental leave. I feel you, girl. What? No. I mean, yes, that would be great. But the best gifts this Mother's Day would be to just leave moms the f alone. Wait. Yeah. What? Are you saying moms want to spend Mother's Day on vacation from their kids? Yes. Or the kids can go on vacation. I don't care. Someone else can run around him on the beach and make sure he doesn't eat sand. I will be at home in my bathtub. And for the first time in a while, actually taking a bath in it instead of just getting in fully dressed and crying. Wow. 
I mean, I've got to say, it does seem more doable than universal childcare. Great. Great. And, and, and this works out well because it doesn't just have to be for Mother's Day. It can be for Father's Day, too. Right. Because dads deserve a vacation, too. No, f*** dads. No, I mean, moms can be alone on Father's Day, too. Also, uh, Memorial Day, obviously, Independence Day, Labor Day, and, um, you know, the month of December. Whoa, whoa, Desi, Desi, you're not gonna spend Christmas Day with your family? Okay, don't mom shame me, Trevor. I'll take that precious little turtle of yours and shove it up your manhole. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to recharge my co-parent. Oh, okay, good luck with that, Desi, and happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day! But let's move on now to our main story, the Republican Party. It's the only party that Mitch McConnell has ever been invited to. Party people in the house say Ever since Donald Trump got the party's presidential nomination in 2016, the GOP has been divided between politicians who love Trump's brash grab-him-by-the-pussy style and those who believe in more traditional Republican values like telling poor people to stop being poor. And now, one of the last holdouts among the anti-Trump traditionalists may be about to get the boot. Tonight, the firestorm over Congresswoman Liz Cheney's position in the Republican Party is growing, with top Republican Steve Scalise saying she needs to be removed from her role as the third-ranking GOP leader. At issue, Cheney's fierce criticism of former President Trump, arguing he should not be a part of the GOP's future after the Capitol attack and his false claims of election fraud. I think that it was uh, was the gravest violation of an oath of office by any president in American history. Cheney survived one removal vote after she voted to impeach Mr. Trump in January. But her GOP critics have only gotten louder. Another removal vote is likely to come next week on Wednesday. Top House Republican Kevin McCarthy caught on a hot mic obtained by Mediaite. I've had it with her. It's, you know, I've lost confidence. Liz Cheney remains defiant, warning her colleagues in a new Washington Post op-ed that history is watching, calling this a turning point. Uh, the GOP is at a turning point? Nigga, that happened a long time ago. Don't you remember Jeb Bush flying out of the car? That was the turn. That was the ultimate turn. Still though, I gotta give props to Liz Cheney for risking her political career to stand up for what she believes in. Because you don't see that very often. You know, it's like seeing someone use an iPhone as an actual phone. You're always like, damn, shit, I totally forgot that they could do that, wow. Say what's up to my grandmother for me, man. And yes, it is a little weird to see a party be so loyal to a guy who doesn't have a loyal bone in his body or possibly any bones in his body, but loyalty to Trump is a defining principle of the GOP right now. And if she doesn't agree with that, it doesn't make much sense for her to be one of the party's leaders. You know, like I think Greta Thunberg makes some great points, but I don't think that she should be on the board of ExxonMobil. Have we considered that instead of selling oil, you all go to prison for killing the planet? Uh, can you stop proposing that every meeting? Who invites her to these things? Why is she here? And you might think it's weird that the party is so outraged over one person saying Donald Trump lost the election, but the reason they're so mad about Liz Cheney is that they don't accept that it's the truth. 70% of Republicans think Joe Biden probably stole the election, and even now, there are still efforts going on to overturn the results in close states, including a big one in Arizona. 
A pitched partisan battle over the 2020 election is raging on in Arizona right now. The GOP-controlled state Senate is carrying out a third audit of Arizona's largest county, even though two prior bipartisan audits found zero evidence of widespread fraud or other issues. The audit is being conducted by people who participated in the insurrections. Anthony Kern, a former state lawmaker who was at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, is among the people helping to count and inspect Maricopa County ballots. Overseeing the exercise, a Florida cybersecurity firm called Cyber Ninjas. It's run by someone who amplified election conspiracy theories. Hell yeah! The Arizona votes are being recounted by Cyber Ninjas. Hiya, hiya! Modem punch! Serve a chop! Hiya! I mean, I thought regular ninjas were cool, but Cyber Ninjas? Those are the kind of ninjas who'll steal your Wi-Fi password, and then when you turn around to look for them, your head falls off. Guys, I really love ninjas. Like, ever since I was a little kid, my 10th birthday party was me and a big group of invisible ninjas. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I realize my mom just told me that because no one showed up. Mom! Now, you might think it's crazy to have election conspiracy theorists in charge of an election audit, but to me, this makes perfect sense. Because don't forget, this is the third audit they've done in Arizona. At this point, you aren't going through the effort of counting again unless you know the guys you're hiring are gonna give you the result you want. This is just smart. And if you're wondering how a bunch of conspiracy nuts are going to turn a Biden win into a Trump win, the answer is in the craziest way possible. The Arizona Senate's ballot recount has been plagued with questions from the beginning. Investigative reporter Morgan Lowe exposed major security lapses, such as open doors that allowed access to equipment and ballots. It was also reported blue pens that can be used to alter ballots were handed out to volunteers. On Friday, a judge ordered Cyber Ninjas, the private company hired to do the audit, provide documents outlining their procedures. Among the many conspiratorial revelations from the release of the internal Cyber Ninja documents, an intense fear of an attack and breach by Antifa and the use of UV light to look for fraud. According to a QAnon theory, the UV light will reveal watermarks that Donald Trump put on the ballots to trap cheating Democrats. Another bizarre twist that I was just telling you about moments ago in the Arizona audit. Auditors are now looking for bamboo in ballots. Audit official John Brakey says there are accusations that 40,000 ballots were smuggled in from Asia. While there's no evidence of this, Brakey says auditors are using cameras now to look for bamboo fibers in ballot paper. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry, no. America's not real, no. These dudes are searching the ballots for bamboo. Like a bunch of starving pandas. Like, who are these people? You know, sometimes, sometimes I actually wish that I was a conspiracy theorist because there is never a dull moment. Like, they can turn a regular-ass Thursday into an Indiana Jones movie like this. And just so you know, they've been looking at these ballots with UV lights for two weeks now, and they haven't found any secret watermarks. But they did find that 98% of the ballots have jizz on them. Yeah. This is why you can't put curtains on voting booths. People are disgusting. Now, it's easy to dismiss this Arizona audit, but there's at least one person who's pretty sure that it's gonna put Donald Trump back in power. And you'll never guess who that person is. 
Former President Donald Trump, meanwhile, continues to perpetuate the big lie about election fraud. Video has surfaced of him addressing a crowd at Mar-a-Lago last Wednesday, discussing the Republican-led recount that's currently underway in Arizona's Maricopa County. Let's see what they find. I wouldn't be surprised if they found thousands and thousands and thousands of votes. So we're going to watch that very closely. And after that, you'll watch Pennsylvania and you watch Georgia and you're going to watch Michigan and uh, Wisconsin. And you're watching New Hampshire. They found a lot of votes up in New Hampshire just now. Oh, my God, Donald. What happened to you? This guy was the president of the United States just a few months ago, and now he's like the world's worst wedding DJ. And I'm not even gloating here. It is sad to see DJT reduced to crashing parties at Mar-a-Lago. In fact, if they were smart, Mar-a-Lago would charge you extra to have Trump not appear at your wedding. Um, if possible, could we not have the former president interrupt my father-daughter dance to rant about the stolen election? Ooh, you want to spring for the deluxe package? Of course, darling. I do feel, though, that we're discovering a new rule of physics here. If Donald Trump comes into contact with a microphone, he's gonna ramble about how the election was rigged. Doesn't even have to be a wedding. He'll take over anything. Could even be a funeral. And we just saw that they found some votes in Pennsylvania. So unlike Timothy here, we're very much alive, people. Very much alive. But look, the truth is, Trump ranting about the stolen election to an audience that eats up every word, that is the Republican Party right now. And it looks more and more like that's not a party Liz Cheney can be a leader in. All right, we gotta take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll find out how the opioid companies killed thousands of people and walked away scot-free. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest is the Emmy and Oscar-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. He's here to talk about his powerful new HBO documentary about the opioid crisis. Alex Gibney, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) Thanks, Trevor. Um, the last time you were on our show was in 2018, and you were on with, um, it was your documentary, Dirty Money. Now you are back with another documentary about a topic that I, I can't even explain to you how infuriating it makes me as a person, because A, of what was done to people, B, of what the ramifications have been, and C, why it feels like almost nothing is going to happen in the way of justice. And that is all about the opioid epidemic. Tell me a little bit about your documentary. It's a two-parter on HBO. It's a two-part doc, four hours, called The Crime of the Century. And the reason I called it The Crime of the Century and the reason I was interested in doing it was it seemed like the opioid crisis was being presented to us almost like a natural disaster, like a hurricane or a flood, as if it just happened. Um, But um, upon examination, it seems clear that it was manufactured, manufactured by a number of key corporations and So there's a crime there, and therefore there are people to be held to account, and therefore there are things that were done wrong that hopefully set right. And what's really interesting in this story, I didn't know some of these parts, was how these drug companies, Purdue in particular, said, you know what? We're going to make sure we get these drugs to the people. We're going to trick everybody from the government through to the consumer and make sure that they take as much of these pills as possible. The question I have for you is, How on earth do they trick the FDA? We got our hands on a document that seems to indicate that actually they got to a person inside the FDA. It was actually the 
the medical officer examining the application and they turn him. And, and in fact, he cooperates with them in terms of reviewing their own application. It's like, wow. A, um, and, and then a, a year after leaving the FDA, lo and behold, he gets a job with Purdue for about close to $400,000. Wow. Uh, coincidence? I think not. This is one of the saddest crime stories for me because it does not end with a sense of justice. It does not end with a sense of the world is in a better place because the company itself doesn't suffer and neither does the family who's made all of the money. That's right. And now you're referring to Purdue. Now, in, in a few rare occasions, some executives have been committed and have gone to prison. In the case of Insys, for example, but we see more often it's the mid-level dealers who get nabbed, uh, the Walter Whites who get nabbed, and the people at the tippy top, the Sackler family, for example, or the key executives at, at Purdue didn't do any time. And it's worse than just them getting off scot-free. We, we got our hands on a 120-page prosecution memo, which was prepared by federal prosecutors, that argued strongly that top executives at Purdue should be charged with felonies. Mysteriously, thanks to the intervention of people like Rudy Giuliani and others, a deal was cut at the Department of Justice. And there was a bargain whereby Purdue would pay a fine, the executives would plead guilty to misdemeanors, they would never serve a day in prison, Purdue would pay their fines. And the most important thing was that all the evidence that was collected over the course of a four-year investigation would be buried. And in the years after that decision happened, hundreds of thousands of people died because nobody could see the damage done. And even worse, all uh, you know, a ton of other companies then rush into the market. They see that Purdue got off with a traffic ticket. So now they're going to rush into the market and really exploit this opioid situation for their own profit. When I saw that part of the documentary, one of the things I found myself thinking was, it's amazing how if you kill a person in America, you, you, you can go away for the rest of your life. But if you kill hundreds of thousands of people, somehow it's just a st statistic. That's right. You know? And the ultimate irony on top of it is they're now paying the fines that they've been required to pay, not from their personal wealth, but rather by selling more opioids. <laughs> yes, you're referring to a recent decision uh, by um, the Department of Justice, another criminal admission of guilt by the Purdue company, and Purdue agrees to pay an $8 billion fine. You think, wow, that's great, $8 billion. What a, what a tremendous punishment. And then you discover, oh, wait a minute. Purdue Pharma is bankrupt. The Sacklers have taken all their money out of the company. And how are they going to pay that $8 billion fine? Well, it turns out the way to pay that fine, because Purdue is bankrupt, is actually to sell more Oxycontin. <laughs> Who makes... You, you, you can't make that up. When, you are, when you're a filmmaker, you're trying to tell us a story. You know, that's what you do in all of your documentaries. And, and oftentimes those stories make people want to do something. In this case, I felt helpless. I was like, well, I mean, the justice, you know, the, the justice department did its thing. The justice had run its course and yet there, there is no justice out there. As a storyteller, you're, you, you're, you're shining a light on this, but what would you hope that A, people can do and B, people can change in what we're experiencing in the world today? Okay, so that's a really good question. And the last thing I want to um, inculcate in people is a sense of hopelessness. 
Because one of the things that I got out of this was that in, in, as big as the opioid crime is, 500,000 people dead, you know, many people, millions of people addicted, it, it pales in comparison to the larger problem, which is the unholy mixture of this turbocharged 21st century capitalism and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Last time I read the Hippocratic Oath, it didn't have anything to do with supply and demand or mm-hmm. market share. It had to do with protect the patient, do no harm. So I think all of us as citizens have got to insist now and admit that our our healthcare system is broken and we got to fix it. We've got to rebuild it in a way that it focuses on the health of patients rather than the profit motive of corporations who are servicing it. Well, I will say this, hopefully, I genuinely hope that as many people as possible watch this and that could be the catalyst for change that so many people desperately need in this country. Alex Gibney, thank you again for your time. Thank you again for your work. I'll see you again on the show. Great, thanks Trevor. Alex Gibney's two-part HBO documentary, The Crime of the Century, debuts May 10th on HBO and HBO Max. All right, when we come back, the brilliant singer-songwriter, Sarah Bareilles, will be joining me on the show. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is Grammy Award-winning singer and songwriter, Sarah Bareilles. She's here to talk about her upcoming live album and starring in the new Peacock series about a girl group that reunites 20 years after their one-hit wonder. Sarah Bareilles, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad that you are here because you're one of the people who very early on had COVID and everybody experienced different symptoms. I've heard some artists who've said that their vocal cords were never the same. Are you completely fine now? I I somehow escaped relatively unscathed, actually. I was so, so lucky. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very mild case really early on, last March. I had been in London and I was doing a show I wrote called Waitress in the West End. And I think pretty much everyone in our cast got it. Wow. And, um, and it was, it, for me, it was pretty mild. But, you know, I, I've lost a friend to COVID. Nick Cordero was wow. one of our company members and, and we lost him to COVID. So I, it's, it's extraordinarily serious, but, you know, it feels like we, we, we can kind of see the finish line here a little bit, definitely. maybe. Yeah, definitely. It, it feels like we're now all optimistically seeing the lights at the end of the tunnel, trying to come out of it, you know? Um, you are here because um, you have a few new projects coming up, which is, I feel like, the perfect time for new life, you know, as, as we're stepping out into the world. You're somebody who's been successful in almost everything you've done. I mean, from New York Times bestseller to winning a Grammy, nominated for Emmys and Tonys, everything you touch turns to gold. This new show that you have on Peacock, Girls 5 Ever, seems like it's going to be no different, not just because of your talent, but because of the talent of the cast and... It is executive produced by Tina Fey. Tell me a little bit about this magical co- connection. I mean, this legitimately was like being getting a, a message from heaven. I was it was the middle of the lockdown. I like so many people was struggling deeply emotionally with what was going on, you know, globally and certainly within our country. Right. The disaster of the past administration and. I was in the depths of despair, as so many found themselves, and I got a phone call from Tina Fey. And I feel like if, if that's a lifeboat, if that's the kind of lifeboat I get once <laughs> in my life, I'm not thrilled about it. 
So um, Tina and Meredith Scardino, who's the creator of Girls by Baba, um, called me and offered me the role of Dawn, who's, um, you know, a member of this 90s girl group who have had their shot at fame and it somehow miraculously comes around again where they get a second chance and they're in their middle age and, and have moved on to families and responsibilities and they're deciding to go for it. And it's just, it was such a gift, so much fun. Yeah, it, it, it isn't just fun to, to, to watch. I mean, the music is fantastic. The performances are amazing. You know, the premise is, is really fun. Oftentimes when I, when I interview people, they're playing a version of themselves in the successful sense. Here you are playing, if I, if I could say this, you are playing a, um, a much less successful version of yourself, essentially. You, you know, you, you, you're playing in this world where it's like things have not gone right. I'd love to know what that was like for you to play. <laughs> but, well, you know how, I, it doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. Like it might look like my life is really shiny, but we all are just, I'm just a self-loathing machine on the inside. Oh. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, I feel like actually I relate a lot to this character. You know, she's kind of a mess, but she tries really hard and she really loves her family. She's very loyal, but she makes mistakes and bad fashion decisions. And I feel like, it's a, it's it's loosely based on my life. Um, because you you it feels like you're doing it all. You know, I, I know nobody's life is perfect, but it is fun to see somebody who's constantly challenging themselves, finding new avenues for what they want to do and how to express themselves. I mean, I know you worked in in producing Little Voice on on Apple Plus. You know, for instance, just yeah. just stretching how you do things. And one of the biggest things your fans would always wonder is, does this mean that you are leaving music? No. No, a thousand percent no. And, you know, I think before I moved to New York, I found myself in this place where I just, it wasn't that I was unhappy. I was just stagnated. And and it felt like it was time to take some left turns and to take out some risks. And I have found in my career that the, the more that I do that's a little bit outside of my comfort zone, the better time I have the more I learn from everything. So we're all in this ride together. <laughs> I feel like that, that makes the title of your new album so perfect, Amidst the Chaos. You're gonna be hosting a concert at um, the Hollywood Bowl. You know, for, for musicians, for performers like myself, I mean, we haven't been out, audiences haven't been out. The, the, that sense of normalcy has yet to fully come back. What are you hoping to do with this show and, and why did you decide, you know what, now's the time for me to put a performance together. Well, so we recorded this, we recorded the live album. We went on the Amidst the Chaos tour at the end of 2019 with all intentions towards releasing this live record um, last year during 2020. And of course, you know, the lockdown happened and it felt completely inappropriate to do anything self-promotional. But um, so here we are at the, you know, on the cusp of things sort of coming back to life and um, it, I wanted to pair the release of this record, this live record that was was recorded at the end of 2019, um, with a little bit of a, a return to the bowl. And the, the biggest takeaway for me was that even these incredible venues, these like cathedrals of music, they don't carry the same meaning without people. So right. I mean, we, we took the stage and it was it was beautiful to be there and it was so special to play an excerpt of the concert. But at the end of the day, I was like, wow, I have never felt the absolute 
thousands of an audience more. And so, all, you know, it I turned it into just one big PR vaccinations. We're so close to getting back into real life and reality with each other, which is the thing I miss the most. And so many people, of course, you know, artists, musicians, poets, technicians, crew, vendors, you know, everybody's waiting to go back to work. Most definitely, most definitely. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Congratulations on everything you've done. Um, Good luck with uh, the show on Peacock. Good luck with the new album. And um, hopefully we'll see you on the other side of the pandemic in person. Thank you so much. Don't forget, Amidst the Chaos, Live at the Hollywood Bowl comes out May 21st. And Girls 5 Ever is streaming now on Peacock. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, everybody. But before we go, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So please consider supporting an organization called the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, founded by Taraji P. Henson. This is a nonprofit committed to eradicating the stigma of mental health issues specifically in the African-American community. By supporting the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, you are helping to increase the number of African-American therapists, combat recidivism within the prison system, and provide mental health support in urban schools. If you're able to help, please go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until next time, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, The best gift you can give your mom for Mother's Day is love. What? No, it's not. Oh, jewelry. Oh, sorry. It's jewelry. Give her jewelry. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.